Tama Japan, I'm Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's show, ozone and swearing. In addition, we'll be joined by Robert Wallace, who will discuss spycraft. So stay tuned for all this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And the world famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Back to Rock Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I guess it's me, Charles Lee. How you doing, Frank? Muggy these days. How are things going over in uh, Chicago? Well, you know, we have the wonderful lake breeze that comes off of uh, Lake Michigan, the lull in the sunspot cycle to help keep us cool. Okay, I thought it was picking up again. It's supposed to be a low year for the uh, sunspots. Oh, okay. Oh, so I'm not sure what it actually entails, other than electronic communications being pretty good. <laughs> I can hear you, man. It turns out I have a story related to the atmosphere. So it wasn't just about the weather, was it actually a segue? I guess so. How coincidental, huh? Here I thought we were just making pleasant small talk. <laughs> if I only knew how. <laughs> yeah, we were scientists, right? We are supposed to be socially inept at that sort of thing. <laughs> right. Anyways, um, I guess there's better understanding of how um, indoor ozone may be forming. Of course, you know, ozone up in the stratosphere is a good thing because it helps to stop the UV lights from penetrating, but... Down here where we breathe, it's actually harmful for our lungs and in general just a very unpleasant compound. But scientists have been wondering for a long time where it comes from and there's been many different mechanisms proposed. But one that looks pretty viable and could be an additional source of ozone is hydrochlorine reacting with nitrous oxide. So as you know, nitrous oxide is that brown yucky stuff you find in the smog. For a long time it was thought that this compound and as well as hydrogen chloride would automatically just absorb to a surface, for example, a wall, and just stay there and it'd be safely sequestered. But what some scientists have now showing is that these two compounds, when they're adhered on a wall, they can still react and then form these chlorine radicals, which can then form the ozone. Where does chlorine uh, come from in most normal indoor environments? Right. So it turns out that burning biomass, even agricultural waste, or even from the oceans, those are sources of hydrogen chloride going in the atmosphere. And all you need is a minute amount that reacts with the nitrous oxide, and then you have other nasty things forming. Stop the oceans. <laughs> Who needs the oceans anyway? They're just sort of building Yeah, more, look at uh... all that land we could have been using. <laughs> yeah, isn't uh, there supposed to be a holiday where they celebrate the oceans in Japan? <laughs> oh, yeah, you're absolutely right. Actually, it's technically the third Monday of July. is called Marine Day. We have to pay our respects. Little do they know that they're just uh, contributing to our uh, indoor ozone levels. <laughs> so anyways, this is fascinating work. It was reporting actually in our very favorite journal. You know, I think Obama has a copy of this at his bedside table. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. I mean, he's intelligent enough, I think. I know I'm not. <laughs> but it's still my favorite journal, which is, of course... Yeah. The Proceedings. Of the National... Academies... Of Sciences. Penas. All right, Frank, so do you like to swear? Well, I would, but I wouldn't go on the air, right? <laughs> well, you know, it turns out that if you actually injure yourself, sometimes swearing might ease the pain. 
Oh, ease the pain. Okay, I, I just, you know, suck it up. <laughs> <laughs> That's what any self-respecting man would do. But psychologist Richard Stevens of Keele University in the United Kingdom came interested in this when his wife was giving birth and heard her issue forth a words, much like a sailor would, and was wondering if it was helping her through the labor process. It helps with the baby's education, right? Supposedly isn't the first words you learn in any language uh, the swear words? <laughs> oh, that is useful. Anyway, apparently there's very little in this anything in the psychological literature about this, so he decided to try an experiment where he had undergraduates write down five potential swear words they would think of if they hit themselves with a hammer, and five words that might describe a table. Mm-hmm. And what they did is he had them stick their hand in a bucket of ice-cold water and either utter the swear words or the words describing a table and found that they could keep their hand in the bucket of ice water 30 to 45% longer uh, when they're swearing than as opposed to when they're using these neutral words. Wow. So apparently swearing helps you endure the pain a little bit more. Analgesic, huh? <laughs> <laughs> then it's not addictive either. Are you sure? I mean, you know... <laughs> So next time we uh, chop off a finger, we should just scream out then, huh? Yeah, I'm not sure many, how many fingers you've chopped off becomes a regular thing for you. It, it goes back. Oh, I forgot about that. You're a lizard, right? <laughs> Spider. Anyway, this is very fascinating work. It was published in the recent edition of Neuro Report. And I guess finally we have this week's Animal Fact of the Week. Ah, the Animal Fact of the Week. You know, if it weren't for animals, I think I would starve to death. (laughs) They're a pretty good source of protein. And, you know, fur for those cold winter nights. (laughs) No, no, we we love animals. That's why we have the Animal Fact of the Week. (laughs) We're kidding, people. Anyway. So this week we have nothing to do with barbecues. It's just elephants. Elephants. I love elephants. Me too. So it turns out elephants are very family-friendly, you know, in terms of animals who like to herd together and keep close-knit connections with their kin. But the latest finding is that if, for example, a significant population of your group gets destroyed, say 75% of your relatives get killed by ivory poachers, then what happens is that these little groups would start taking in elephants from other herds to recombine. So it's almost Mm. like a mechanism to form a nuclear family after uh, one has been broken up. This is, well, interesting because in terms of this behavior in animals, it may be an evolutionary trait that helps animals survive together by foraging together and sharing their resources. I wonder if our (laughs) behavior is a result of evolution. So elephants are our best friends, our nearest friends. Pink elephants are definitely my friends. (laughs) Oh, yeah, you can drink with them. And if you want to know more about that. A short article in a recent edition of Science. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. This is the Grox Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, Mr. Robert Wallace will join us to discuss spycraft. So stay tuned. Welcome back to the Grok Science Show. 
Well, invisible photographs and stealth helicopters may sound like fantasy elements from a James Bond film, but these are actual technologies used by the CIA to gather information and ensure national security. The development and history of the spy gadgets is one of the intense interests, but has been largely unexplored in the popular medium. Well, join us today to discuss this issue is Mr. Robert Wallace. Mr. Wallace is the former director of the CIA's Office of Technical Service. He is the recipient of the Intelligence Medal of Merit, founder of the Artemis Consulting Group, and a contributor to the CIA's Center for the Study of Intelligence. He has penned the new book with J. Keith Melton entitled Spycraft, The Secret History of the CIA's Spy Tech, from Communism to Al-Qaeda. Mr. Wallace, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Well, certainly our pleasure, and I think this is really a very fascinating look at the CIA's espionage. Uh, does the CIA mind you giving away all their secrets? <laughs> well, I don't think we're giving away secrets. What we are talking about is the transformation of human intelligence from almost a primitive or no technical component in the 1940s to now in 2009, where technology plays a critical and indispensable role for our spy operations. Mm. The book is really fascinating because it sort of goes into the history of field of uh, espionage. How did it start? In uh, World War II, the uh, United States intelligence apparatus was uh, known as the Office of Strategic Services. And this was founded by a World War I hero, Medal of Honor winner, by the name of General William Donovan. Donovan recognized that technology could play a decisive role. And so he hired a Boston chemist, uh, an industrialist by the name of Stanley Lovell, to put together a research and development division for U.S. intelligence. And uh, Lovell's creation uh, produced a whole variety of primarily explosive and weapons-type devices, the sorts of things that you would normally want to use in uh, wartime. When the CIA was created in 1947, Lovell, who then was back in the business world but still maintained his connection with intelligence, pushed Alan Dulles and the leadership of the new CIA to create a specific technical component to build gear for spies. Mm -hmm. And that's what the Office of Technical Service uh, emerged from beginning in 1951. I see. And so then the push became towards building better gadgets in a way. Yeah, it sure did. We had a number of significant technical innovations in the late 1940s and the 1950s, perhaps most significant was the invention of the integrated circuit. Uh, actually, just 50 years ago this year, we're celebrating the 50th anniversary of the integrated circuit uh, with the original uh, patent application in May of 1959. And that integrated circuit led to a new generation, actually a never-before-conceived generation of both covert communications devices and also audio surveillance gadgets was for eavesdropping and for secret communications. What the integrated circuit did, uh, it uh, gave us a previously uh, unheard of reliability of uh, these little devices. Previously, they had to be built with vacuum tubes. Secondly, because the power drain was so much less from the integrated circuit than the vacuum tube, we were able to power these with with very small batteries, smaller and smaller batteries. In fact, they, they became powered with commercial batteries. 
and that gave us incredible flexibility in being able to install audio bugs uh, virtually anywhere in the world. I wonder if maybe you can describe some of these types of devices that were uh, created. A couple uh, that might be particularly of interest. One of the demand was always for a very small bug or audio device, eavesdropping device. Uh, So the geniuses, and I think that's an appropriate word, in the office actually built a bullet microphone. Hmm. And uh, this was a device that they could put in a a bullet, a fairly large bullet, maybe a 50 caliber size uh, bullet. But the idea was to uh, be able to fire this bullet into a distant target. The one we had in mind specifically was a tree inside a Soviet embassy compound where we knew Soviet intelligence officers met to discuss their uh, secrets uh, outside underneath a shade tree because they thought their offices were bugged. So we said, we'll bug the tree. But how do do you bug a tree when you can't get inside the compound? Well, uh, another uh, officer said, hmm, you know, the the compound has a fence around it, but it's not a wall. And so in the middle of the night, well, we could actually fire a bullet into that tree if it had a microphone on it and pick up their conversations. So that was one of the fascinating small devices that was developed. Another we tell the story of is the acoustic kitty. And in that one, uh, the idea was to wire a cat, just a live cat, a pussy cat, with a microphone. We had a target of a foreign leader who allowed cats to roam around his uh, presidential office and his cabinet room. And so the idea was, well, if we can put a bug in a cat, Uh, This is uh, now in the 1960s, so think about not only the technology of the device itself, but this was before we had pacemakers and artificial knees and all of those sorts of things. So the the human body, the body of a mammal, is kind of a hostile environment for electronics. Certainly at that time it was. But the techs uh, successfully implanted a microphone and uh, batteries and an antenna in a cat, and demonstrated that it could be done. Wow. Uh, certainly audio was not the only thing developed. Certainly trying to take fine pictures using small devices was also a, an area of interest. Uh, yeah. In, in fact, in terms of the devices that really paid the freight, if you want to say that, uh, mm-hmm. use that term for American intelligence, uh, none was more important than the T-100 Ultra Sub-Miniature Camera. And this was a camera, a film-based camera, built in the early 1970s that was smaller than the last third of your pinky finger. And the camera was capable of taking 100 photographs of a normal-sized sheet of paper. The idea was when we had a spy who had access to secret documents, we wanted the information on those secret documents. Well, how can you get that? If the spy steals the documents, then the opposition knows that the documents are missing. If the spy takes the documents home at night to copy them with a camera at home, there's always the high risk that he'll be discovered doing that. But with this sub-miniature camera, was embed that in a working fountain pen. And the spy then could carry that working fountain pen into his office, into the secure facilities, and use the pen normally but then when he had an opportunity, use it as a camera or activate the camera that was in, inside that pen and actually take photographs of those documents. 
Wow, it's amazing. It, re- it really was, and again, it was remarkable technology for the time. In, in fact, the technology, it was, it was developed by a single individual who is really an optical as well as a mechanical genius. And uh, we were so concerned that something might happen to this developer, because he was the only source we had for these cameras, that we actually took the drawings, uh, the engineering drawings of the camera, and gave them to two prominent American manufacturers, camera manufacturers, said, hey, you know, we want to second source this to you. And both of them came back and said, I can't do it. The optics, we can never get the optics aligned to take a clear picture. (laughs) (laughs) The the engineer who was the principal lead on the project told me, he said, I just had to bite my tongue because I wanted to uh, tell these companies, well, that's fine, but you know, we do have 50 of them in stock. (laughs) (laughs) One of the interesting ones that uh, is mentioned also is the insectothopter. Uh, yes, this this is the the genius of the men and women who worked in that office. I think because they were they were twenty thirty years in advance of where technology would be recognized as kind of commonplace in, in the non intelligence environment. So the insectothopter was the idea to take one of these very tiny eavesdropping bugs that we just mentioned, something like the bullet mic, but put it in a flying machine, actually uh, disguise it as in one case, a dragonfly. And then have that dragonfly, you have to have batteries, you have to have control, of course, you have to have small microphones, but then that dragonfly, it's essentially a man flying vehicle, a UAV. We hear about UAVs now all the time with the predators in Afghanistan, a lot bigger, of course, than the dragonfly that we're talking about. But the idea was to take these tiny devices and then be able to remotely fly them to a target destination, a windowsill or through a window or just into some area where you didn't have human access. Hmm. How has the technology sort of adapted since the era of the Cold War into now the sort of the modern era? Terrific question. Uh, and I argue in spycraft that there are really two major revolutions in spy technology occurred in the 20th century. The first was with the integrated circuit in 1959. The second, and probably even more dramatic than the integrated circuit, was what happened in 1992-1993. That's when you had the simultaneous appearance of the Internet, digital technology, worldwide, 24-7, assured communications, networked computers, and data storage that could be measured in terabytes. This profoundly affected intelligence gadgets because now not only was technology something that we could use for spying, but the technology itself uh, essentially became a spy. You could recruit technology to give you information. If you could recruit a server in a target's computer system, computer network, well, then that server would actually feed you back the intelligence information that previously only an agent could give you. Hmm. In my view, it has substantially uh, increased the capability of the offense, and it presents a terrific challenge to the defense. And I say this uh, in this context. 25, 30 years ago, only the top half a dozen national intelligence services had the capability to build the insectothopter, to build the T-100 camera, to build these kinds of devices. Today, with the digital technology, the capability to 
photograph, record, transmit, intercept, do almost all of the basic intelligence functions is in the hands of every man, literally. And most recently, or very recently, in the Mumbai terrorist attack that happened in India last November, if you read the account of that, it was an operation that was planned, controlled, and executed almost entirely by this digital world, by GPS, uh, by email, by cell phones, all of the basic things that is in the hands of, of any individual can now be used uh, by an adversary. Doesn't the newer technologies bring with it its own challenges of filtering through all this information now, which is very readily available? Uh, the, the question of volume, now we're talking about intelligence from a collection standpoint. The volume question really plagues the intelligence community, and there have been substantial amount of work that is aggressively going on and trying. Uh, how do you filter through? How do you sort through literally terabytes of data that are that are flowing across all communication systems day after day? Very hard to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, it looks like we're running slightly out of time. I'm wondering if maybe you just have some final words regarding uh, the evolution of spy tech gadgetry. Well, I do. I point on spy technology is that it is a never-ending evolution that the people who are on the defensive side have to struggle very hard to stay ahead of the offensive side. We're seeing that with the national debate on cyber technology today. How how do you think the U.S. is faring so far in this war? I think we're working very hard to stay afloat in this. And and other countries are as well. No, No one has the answer to this, the whole technology is out in front of where governments are. Mm. You're seeing that in Iranian events on the last week. Indeed, indeed. One final question. You've seen the evolution of this firsthand. Did you ever think this is the way it would turn out? Uh, I thought when I first became conscious of the uh, internet that we have a technology that will affect societies as profound uh, as the uh, printing press is a Gutenberg uh, printing press affected it, and, and I think that's proving to be accurate. Hmm. Well, the new book is called Spycraft, the uh, Secret History of the CIA's Spy Techs from Communism to Al-Qaeda. Mr. Wallace, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. I sure appreciate it. Could I give my website? Oh, please do. Our website is www.ciaspycraft.com. That's C-I-A-S-P-Y-C-R-A-F-T dot com. And you were just listening to Mr. Robert Wallace discussing Spycraft. This is the Grok's Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned.
it's time to play the game the Grokatron 5000. The Grokatron 5000 is our supercomputer, formerly known as Deep Blue. And today the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic James Bond or Maxwell Smart. So for the following five individuals, if they were a spy, would you think that they would be more like James Bond or more like Maxwell Smart? Uh, Mr. Wallace, are you ready to play the game? I'd be happy to play. Okay. Uh, as, as long as there is a really big prize. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll send it to you uh, stealthily. <laughs> I like that. Okay. I am ready to go. Okay. Person number one, if you were a spy, would it be James Bond or Maxwell Smart? Talk show host Jerry Springer. Oh, Jerry Springer uh, would uh, definitely be James Bond because uh, James Bond is always out there trying to get himself killed. <laughs> Uh, number two is uh, the real estate mogul Donald Trump. Uh, Donald Trump would uh, probably be uh, more of a Maxwell smart because Donald Trump always seems to have a beautiful Agent 99 very near him. <laughs> uh, number three is the golfer Tiger Woods. Uh, Tiger Woods, uh, I suspect he is a, is a James Bond uh, because, yeah, he's just too cool. <laughs> You know, under, under fire, nothing rattles him. <laughs> All right. Uh, number four is the huckster Bernie Madoff. Bernie Madoff has got to be Maxwell Smart. <laughs> you know, uh, Bernie Madoff came just this close, boss, to getting away with it all. <laughs> just missed it by this much. You should have used the cone of silence. And <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I like that, and... Uh, uh, you know, the uh, the cone of silence is a wonderful device. The CIA, uh, actually, Maxwell Smart had it about 10 years before the CIA did, but we did develop one. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was really called more the box of silence, but it had the same purpose. All right. Finally, number five, the President of the United States, Barack Obama. Well, uh, you know, Barack Obama is more like uh, either, uh, either M or or the chief you know for either either bond uh, or smart and uh, we hope uh, and i actually believe that the uh, president of the united states uh, has a number of maxwell smarts and james bonds working in the cia who are very effective intelligence officers for him it's good news for us all mr wallace i want to thank you for sticking around uh, playing our game and of course again talking about your book which is called spycraft the Secret History of the CIA's Spy Techs from Communism to Al-Qaeda. Thank you again for your time. Well, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Bye now. Bye. All right. And it's time for this week's Question of the Week. And with us today is the last action Korean kid. You don't know Chobo. I am StarCraft Master. You nothing. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm nothing. I go so you Chobo. Wow. Uh, okay, Sensei. I teach you... 550 action per minute if you want a photolysis. Wow, photolysis is cool. So what do I need to do? Very good. You want to photolyze chemical. You take a photon and you hit the chemical bond and it break apart 550 times <laughs> faster than I, you know I can do. Wow, that's a lot of electrons. These are very good. All right, action kid. We'll have to meet at the arcade sometime. You know StarCraft, I know StarCraft. Hey, thanks a lot. Chobo.
And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Grok Science, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Bling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.